the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The war in Ukraine rolls on as the Russian occupation continues and the Ukrainian pushback gains momentum. Now Russia is claiming a part of Ukraine as its own following a sham election in the region. Today we're going to catch up on what's happening in this conflict and why it matters globally. Then we'll hear about efforts to expand digital access right here in Detroit. It's all next on Detroit Today. But first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So if you're paying attention to the news, you know there is lots coming out of the war in Ukraine these days. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared portions of eastern and southern Ukraine, up to 15% of the country, a part of Russia following a sham referendum that was held in these occupied regions. This follows his announcement last week that 300,000 men will be drafted into the conflict and an announcement that was met with the largest unrest seen in the country to date and causing thousands of Russians to flee the country. This attempted illegal annexation has been denounced by the U.N., but also signals that Putin may be doubling down on this seven-month-old effort to invade and occupy Ukraine. But of course, Ukraine, following weeks of success reclaiming territory, shows no sign of backing down in this battle. Ukrainian President Zelensky recently reiterated that the country will not engage in peace negotiations while their sovereign territory is being annexed. And their Western support shows no signs of slowing either. While Russia has attempted to break the Western alliance with tactics like reducing and threatening access to energy, to date, that really hasn't worked. The rest has reportedly committed more than $100 billion in aid to Ukraine since the war started, with a quarter of that coming from us here in the United States. And the United States has signaled continued support for Ukraine as Putin's saber-rattling continues. I'm going to play a quick clip of uh, President Biden talking about what the Russians did today with uh, this annexation of a region of Ukraine. The United States will never never, never recognize Russia's claims on Ukraine's sovereign territory. This so-called referenda was a sham, an absolute sham. The results were manufactured in Moscow. The true will of the Ukrainian people is evident every day as they sacrifice their lives to save their people and maintain the independence of their country and uh, in defense of uh, freedom as well. 
Not much give in that statement from the president of the United States about the support that the U.S. continues to give, along with other Western nations, to Ukraine as it battles against Russia. So how did we get to this moment, and where do we go from here? And importantly, what does this conflict mean, not only for Russians and Ukrainians, but for all of us around the globe. It's one thing to take this in as news of a conflict that is many, many miles away. It's another thing to think about what context it sits in and how it affects the other things that go on around the globe. So to help us put all of this in that context and answer all of the questions that are swirling around the Russian-Ukrainian war. I'm joined by Aaron Reddish, who is a history professor at Wayne State University with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history, also a frequent contributor to our show here on Detroit Today. Aaron, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So last time you and I talked, I believe, was in the spring, in March, uh, and things looked pretty different then, I think, than they do now. But, but I'd love your assessment of how different they are, why they're different, and I guess where all of the big questions about what's happening there stand now almost six months later. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, the, the war has both uh, changed a lot and also not changed at all. I guess in the spring, there were fears that Ukraine would collapse quickly, being overrun by Russia, um, you know, remember, they got to the, the doorstep uh, and into into Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Uh, and while uh, the Ukrainians were able to push them back, uh, Russia actually during the summer had actually made advances, kind of slow churning advances, especially in the south, um, and had established kind of this this corridor between Crimea and Russia. Um, but things changed a lot just in the last um, last month when Ukraine was able to launch this massive offensive uh, in the east, in, in Kharkiv, where they captured over 2,300 uh, square miles of land in this kind of this blitz offensive and kind of pushed Russia back on its heels. Um you know, there have been these these sanctions that have um, slowly worked. Um, and that's kind of a larger question in Russia. But, you know, the the, the bigger thing is that it's you know, the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine has affected energy prices. It's affected uh, global geopolitics. So that's kind of a the broad view of where we stand now. So I want to talk specifically um, about what Vladimir Putin announced this week uh, and what that means, what happened with this referendum that he says shows that people in this particular region of Ukraine actually want to be part of Russia. But then I want to tie this back to why Putin invaded Ukraine in the first place and, of course, the long history between these two countries. Uh, this is not something that flared up um, this year or last. Uh, this is something that's been going on for a really long time. 
Yes. So uh, the we have been expecting the referendum to happen. Uh, this was a referendum basically to justify the annexation of four regions. It's kind of the, the large uh, the Donetsk region, but it's Kherson, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Zaporizhia uh, that have historically a large um, population that identifies and uh, identifies as Russian. Um, you know, Ukraine is a multinational, a multi-ethnic country, as is Russia, uh, which is kind of one of the, the tensions here. And Russia has used this um, used referendum as a way to justify uh, its next plans. Obviously, this is it's what happened uh, this last weekend in these four regions mirrors what happened in Crimea in 2014. Um, but if we kind of back up, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine for a couple of reasons. In part, it's possible that they thought that NATO was going to um, kind of take, uh, kind of attack Russia. That's kind of one one idea. But it's this larger uh, view that Ukraine isn't really a nation that Ukraine should be part of Russia, or at least it should be um, under its tutelage, mm -hmm. that what Russia was doing was gathering the lands. And Putin has been very um, clear uh, and uniform in one of this kind of part of his ideology that Russia should have jurisdiction or should be able to speak for all those who identify as Russia, as Russian, either in Russia itself or beyond. And then this is also um, uh, kind of this clash between Russia and the West, according to Putin. You saw this in the um, speech that, was, that he just concluded. Uh, what is it about all of this that should make people here uh, and people around the world really care? about what happens and what the outcome is. I mean, I think, uh, as I said in the open, it's one thing to take it in as news, which it is, and it's interesting news. And certainly I think a lot of people are inspired by the Ukrainian response to the Russian invasion and are, are kind of eagerly awaiting news that 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 continues to succeed but but talk about how something like this the invasion of one nation by another uh, something in this region this this part of the world that has in, in, important strategic value um, really does connect to us and our lives and our sense of uh, of the world and, of course, like of global global interaction and hegemony. Yeah, um, it's really hard when there's fighting on the, you know, over the ocean to kind of connect. But if we kind of go from the the macro to the to the micro, you know, what's going on in Ukraine right now is the largest uh, armed conflict in Europe since World War Two. Uh, there is possibilities, although I mean, it's the, Putin has raised the the possibility of a kind of of nuclear nuclear war. 
Um, and that is something that should scare us. Uh, this is an issue of international norms and international law we see in the referendum, which is, a, as you said, is a, a sham. Uh, and um, this is a violation of national sovereignty. And what happens there could be used to justify further um, violations of national sovereignty. Think China to Taiwan. Um, so there's there are these issues of, of international norms. Um, there's also an issue of economics uh, that it what is going on in Ukraine is affecting energy prices. Um, it's affecting global supply. Uh, in the United States, but also globally, as that the global South, especially places like um, Lebanon, are still having problems getting food. But then, if we kind of get down to the the individual, you know, I think there is this beyond what we pay at the at the at the pump. Um, there is kind of you know a connection, kind of this human connection. Hmm. Um, of what it would mean to have someone's uh, home taken by an, an invader. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the Detroit metropolitan area is home to a, a lot of Ukrainian, East European um, uh, immigrants and also those of heritage. So it's not just what's happening overseas. It could also be people who have connections, your neighbors, Um that this that there's actually kind of a, a human connection here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm talking with Aaron Reddish, uh, who is a history professor at Wayne State University with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history. He joins us from time to time to talk about uh, issues regarding uh, Russia and that part of the world. Right now, we're talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, of course, the Ukrainian pushback that invasion, uh, the, the fact that this week uh, Russian uh, Premier Vladimir Putin uh, laid claim to a part of Ukraine because he says that the people of that region of the country want to be Russians, want to be part of Russia instead of Ukraine. Uh, we would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think about the war in Ukraine? Do you think much about it? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about what's happening so far away, uh, but in a very important region and with a very important international rival of ours involved. Uh, should America be involved more or less in this conflict? There is a lot of support coming from the United States and other Western countries for Ukraine as it fights against the Russian invasion. Do you think that support is appropriate? Uh, do you think we should double down on that or uh, do you think we should stay out uh, of this matter? Also, we would love to hear from people who have direct connections to this uh, conflict. Uh, are you someone of Russian origin? Are you somebody of Ukrainian origin? Uh, and uh, let us know what is going on with uh, your family who might still be in the region, what you hear about this conflict from them. Uh, also, let us know how you feel uh, about it. What what uh, what does this look like from afar if you're someone 
with roots in that part of the world. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we go to listeners, uh, Aaron, I want to go back to the parallels, I guess, between um, uh, what was done in 2014 in Crimea and um, what's happening now uh, in in Ukraine and why the interest in this part of uh, of the Ukraine like what is it about this region that the Russians really uh, really feel as though it's got to be part of Russia I mean I know that there are there are deep, ethnic ties, of course, uh, and, and there are people in these regions who kind of think of themselves, I, I think, as, as Russians. Um, but, but what is the other value of this? Are there other strategic values that bring the Russians back to this over and over again? Yeah, so there are uh, historical, cultural, and strategic reasons uh, why Russia is interested in Ukraine and why Ukraine is itself uh, tied to to Russia. Um, so historically, you know, Ukraine was arguably the cradle of Russian civilization. Um, Kievan Rus, going back a thousand years, is where um, where uh, Russia actually converted to where Eastern Orthodoxy kind of came to to the lands. Uh, they share a similar language. Um, Ukraine had been part of the Russian Empire, um, and uh, and there's a lot. Of, there's been historically a lot of kind of uh, cultural uh, interconnections. A lot of Ukrainians live in Russia. A lot of Russians live in uh, in Ukraine. Um, there's a bigger question of when did Ukrainian nationalism or kind of the idea of the Ukrainian nation um, kind of come to be. Uh, and the Kremlin has argued that this is um, more of a kind of fabricated or a, a modern conception. Ukrainians look back um, hundreds of years and see kind of their own Ukrainian nation that has a separate history hmm. uh, from from Russia, and Ukraine isn't alone in this, right? There are other uh, other now nations uh, across the former Russian Empire and across the former Soviet Union that are their own their own nations. Um, Crimea, which is this southern peninsula uh, at the at the southern tip of Ukraine. Um, was only quote unquote given to Ukraine during the Soviet Union, uh, and it has a, a multi-national uh, uh, population. And when uh, Russia took when it annexed Crimea in 2014 during the uh, Ukrainian Revolution, um, this was very popular among Russians because they saw this land as coming home, coming back to them. Um, even though it was kind of part of the of the Ukrainian nation, mm. the other four districts that were just seized during this uh, that are about to be legally if illegally annexed uh, by Russia are a different story because they have always been 
part of this Ukrainian nation that is part of the Ukrainian Republic, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, part of the Ukrainian nation. Uh, and there are there's a mix of Russian and Ukrainian speakers. And it gets into a bigger question of what does this mean to be Russian? What does it mean to be Ukrainian? Because there are a lot of people, even Zelensky, right, whose first language is Russian, sure. living in Ukraine, uh, and yet they identify as Ukrainians. Uh, and people's self-identity, national identity also change. So when Putin claims this land as Russian or says that he is he is annexing these lands because to protect Russians from genocide or from uh, ethnic discrimination, um, this is his own ideology talking about both Russian nationalism and denouncing or kind of uh, pushing aside Ukrainian views of na national selfhood. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Aaron Reddish about the Soviet and Ukrainian war. We will also get to you on the phones and on social. Jim and Gross Point, Mark and Redford, Anthony and Ann Arbor, we will get to you next. If you want to join them, of course, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've got Aaron Reddish with us today. He's a history history professor at Wayne State with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history. Today, we're talking about the Russian war against Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians. Uh, what's happened since that happened? A lot of things have actually occurred and, and changed in this war. And we're talking about why it matters, why those of us here in the United States ought to be concerned and paying attention to what's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. How closely are you following the war in Ukraine? Uh, what do you think of the things that have happened? What do you think of the announcement by the Russians this week that they are annexing a part of Ukraine. Uh, also, we would love to hear from folks who have ties to the region. I know this is uh, an area where lots of us uh, are, are here from other countries, and lots of people come from that region of the world. Tell us what you hear from people who you have still have a connection with in Ukraine or Russia. Um, also, let us know how that influences the way you're thinking about the war. 313 Five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Is that the, those? That's the number on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll include you that way. Let's 
first go to Mark in Redford. Mark, welcome to the show. Yes, hi. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Good morning, Professor Reddish. I emailed you hi. in the past. I was thinking of taking your Soviet history class at Wayne State in the winter. But um, my question is, do you think Premier Putin uh, would ever come to the diplomatic table to talk things over? I mean, I in my mind, I say no, but I think back of what Khrushchev had done with Kennedy, and there was um, an impasse to avoid the, um, um, the consequences of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he slammed, and Khrushchev slammed his heel at the United Nations um, conference in the past also. So in the back of my mind, I want to say Putin had come to the realization that uh, there's a united effort for world peace. Hmm. Uh, Mark, really appreciate the question. Uh, Aaron, what, what what is the role of negotiation here? I mean, I think there's there is a sense among Ukrainians that you know you don't you don't negotiate with an invader. Uh, this was an unprovoked attack on a sovereign nation, and that the way to fight back is to push them out. At the same time, um, you know, the negotiation might save lives and might yield a more peaceful resolution to all of this. What, what what would Putin think? But then, just as importantly, what what would the Ukrainians think about the idea of, of negotiations? Yeah, um, of course, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I, I think that the only way for the war in Ukraine to end um, without regime change on either side is through negotiation or through a diplomatic settlement. <clears throat> um, and Putin actually just, I mean, I think it is, um, you know, it's all words, but no action. He did say that, uh, that he did just ask Zelensky to um, negotiate. Um, he's said this before. Zelensky has said that Ukraine will fight um, until Russians are out of all Ukraine, and that includes Crimea. There were, I mean, there were uh, kind of this, uh, a hot piece going on after, um, uh, with the Minsk agreements that were able to kind of calm the war uh, after Russia actually unofficially brought in troops after 2014. Um, but what a peace would mean, I mean, what that negotiation would be is, is something that I don't quite understand. It's 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 possible that, that Ukraine will continue its offenses and continue to gain land. Uh, I think that, that that probably won't be the case, that they'll go back and forth. And But if Ukraine does continue to seize land, then Putin might need to save face and uh, sign a diplomatic uh, kind of come to come to a peace. Um, and that's also only if I think if there's domestic instability. Um, on the other hand, if Putin can if the Russians continue to uh, push forward or actually to seize more land in Ukraine, um, then Russia might say that it has achieved its goals of kind of, of taking um, the Donbass, uh, 
and it has this land corridor. And then there's just going to be a very unsettled piece. So I'm, I am not, I'm usually a hopeful person, but I am not hopeful in this situation about what's going to happen in the next year or two. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Mark, really appreciate the call and, and the provocative question. Let's go next to Jim in Gross Point. Jim, what's on your mind? Uh, Stephen, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the aspect that I want to bring up and what you're talking about, how this war impacts uh, uh, us personally, is this war started at the same time that the uh, IPCC uh, released a report saying that it was uh, code red for humanity and uh, we only had until 2025 to peak our emissions uh, if we wanted to avoid 1.5 degrees Celsius in the future. And you can see what's happening with climate change down in Florida and Pakistan and all these other places. Now we're only at uh, 1.1. So how does the war impact? Well, it's not helping diplomatics. You know, we're coming up to, uh, excuse me, the COP27. Uh, I don't see I don't see how Russia is really going to participate very well. And China's already broken up relations or not relations, but talking about climate change. Mm-hmm. And then the other point is uh, the military, the U.S. military is the number one institutional emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're embarked. We're increasing our military, but we're also uh, this war is char is is uh, creating a uh, an arms race worldwide. Now, to prove or to reinforce this point and, and you know, trying to get the, the word out, uh, myself and another veteran got arrested on Climate Strike Day in Lansing with a bunch. We uh, were with the coalition, coalition of uh, Michigan Peace Groups. And I was wondering if the professor could say something about how you th- he thinks this is going to impact, you know, uh, going into COP27 and dealing with climate change. Yeah. Thank you. Great question, Jim. Thanks uh, for the call. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah. So uh, two things. One is war is never good for the environment. Um, And we see this here that the war has destroyed. I mean, just uh, forests, um, fields. uh, It has, as you mentioned, kind of let out uh, greenhouse gases. We see in the the recent sabotage of, of the Nord Stream pipeline that this is releasing um, methane uh, into the sea. It speaks to a larger issue, though, uh, of the reliance, the world's reliance on um, on energy, that is, on on natural energy, gas and oil. And this war is about uh, geopolitics, Ukrainian national sovereignty, but the language in which it speaks is is about energy um, for the Russian economy is propped up by its natural resources, gas and oil especially. Uh, and it is um, and it dictates um, you know Western European policy is dictated by its historical reliance on Russian gas, uh, and oil. Um, so, uh, especially Germany had a very kind of tight connection and reliance on, on Russian gas. If they didn't have this, and I mean, Western Europe is, is much more, um, 
is much less reliant on natural natural uh, energy than um, than the United States, but it shows just the the power of gas and oil here. Um, and the winner is going to be a test. It's going to be it's going to show uh, the world how reliant they are mm-hmm. on gas and 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 oil. Um, and Russia knows this. Uh, as does Western Europe. So it's going to be the, these next few months are going to be a real, um, a long test of, of what of what it actually means to be reliant on on natural gas and oil. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, Jim, really appreciate the call and the, uh, the the question. Let's go to Anthony in Ann Arbor. Anthony, what's on your mind? Hello, Stephen. Um, just you know, in general, I think you know I have a different opinion on this whole conflict and. Uh, Specifically, you, you described it as an unprovoked invasion in this segment, and I just kind of disagree with that because, and if you recall, you had a photojournalist from the Washington Post on a few months ago, mm-hmm. and he said that somebody has been shelling somebody or a group of people have been shelling a group of people. He didn't specify which groups for eight years. So I don't know you know, where you think you can shell and bomb someone for eight years and call that unprovoked or whatever happens after that. Hmm. Well, um, Anthony, I mean, you, you've, you've made this point before when we talk about uh, the, this war, and, and obviously I respect your opinion. Um, I, I don't know what the provocation would be for one sovereign nation invading another that would, that would, you know, that would justify uh, that invasion. Um, I, I oppose it when we do it as the United States. Uh, in places around the globe. So, so, but, but I do want to give Aaron a chance to answer this because he's the expert and, and, and he knows the history. Uh, is it unfair, Aaron, to describe this as an unprovoked invasion? Uh, it was, it was unprovoked. The, the main question though, is what I, it was unprovoked period. We need to look at how the Russian, um, leadership saw it though. Uh, did the Russian leadership see it as unprovoked? And they, um, the clearly people inside the Kremlin saw that um, what was going on in the Don was um, not to their liking. Um, that is the the Donetsk that they saw um, Russians treated unfairly. And then they also saw Ukraine moving towards NATO. Um, I think there's a larger issue here, uh, a bigger question uh, that I've seen both from the far left and from the far right in the United States uh, that opposes U.S. support for the war because they see it either as imperialist or um, that Russia is justified in and that Ukraine is corrupt. Um, I think that that you know there there might be some elements of truth here. This is you know this is uh, imperialist, imperialist from the U.S., but certainly imperialist from Russia. But we also need to go. You know, I see this as kind of a colonial or a Cold War view that what this is is a war of national uh, about the nation about Ukraine defending uh, national sovereignty as national project. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and Russia trying to impose its own national project through forced intervention. So this isn't just one of kind of uh, Western imperialism. It's one of about contested ideas about nationhood and I would say uh, democracy. Mm. Yeah. Okay, uh, Aaron Reddish, uh, history professor here at Wayne State University. It's always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to help us uh, understand what is going on uh, with uh, Russia and uh, its interactions with other nations around the globe. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, we are going to take another break, and we're going to switch subjects. We're going to talk about Digital Inclusion Week in Detroit what that means and why it's important. We're going to have Detroit's Director of Digital Inclusion, Joshua Edmonds, join us to talk about Digital Inclusion Week. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. You can't overstate, I think, the importance of access to the internet. As more of our lives transition to online spaces and more of our lives are made possible by connections, digital connections, uh, I think that means you're being left behind if you don't have access to the internet, studying information, connection to friends, news and job opportunities, all of these things flow through the online world. So why doesn't everyone have access by now? Close to half of the U.S. population does not use broadband speed due to cost, infrastructure, or lack of knowledge. And locally, 30% of Detroiters do not have access to the internet at home. In response, in July, the Biden-Harris administration launched its Internet for All initiative, which draws an unprecedented $65 billion from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And last week, they announced a $502 million program for high-speed internet in rural communities. Locally, Detroit uh, officials are trying to close the gap as well. Last month, Detroit donated 500 decommissioned computers to be refurbished and provided to Detroit families. And Human IT, a nonprofit located at Focus Hope, is leading the effort by taking donated computers and devices and refurbishing them. Against the backdrop of that, of course, uh, we still have tremendous challenges making sure that people in this city are connected. That's about growth, economic growth. It's about opportunity, and it is about equality. Josh Edmonds is here to talk with us about all this. He is Detroit's Director of Digital Inclusion, and he's been trying to ensure that all Detroiters have access to the internet. Josh, welcome to Detroit Today. 
good morning, and thank you for that overview. That was very thorough and comprehensive. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Uh, so what does this look like? Uh, talk about how many residents in Detroit don't have access to the Internet in, in their homes. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're right, that 30% figure. And, you know, that is a dynamic figure. What you're going to find throughout the course of the year is that a family might have it during maybe tax season. And then by the time back to school comes around, they might not have it. And I think that that's a part of the issue when we start conceptualizing the problem, that this isn't one that we can just solve one time. You have to keep solving for it over and over and over again. As people move, transient populations, uh, we need to develop a responsive strategy. You know, even in the mentioning of the computer part, where, you know, about 45% of residents here do not have a desktop or laptop computer. Um, and when you think about, you know, the life cycle of computers, even some of the refurbished ones we have, we are still going to have to keep dealing and figuring out ways to be responsive to needs. And let's be honest here, we're talking about conditions of poverty that are influencing the digital divide. Mm -hmm. And when we think about the, the places where this is the most challenging and think about the people um, who, who live in those places, you know, it seems like there's kind of a two-pronged issue. One is what you're pointing out, which is poverty itself, which is one of our biggest challenges in the city. But the other is infrastructure. And the and as you just noted, you know, kind of the changing infrastructure that we're we're enduring here in in the city. It's hard, I think, to to come up with permanent solutions to this because um, there's inconsistency in the in the way that people have to live uh, in Detroit. You're absolutely right, uh, and that is the thing where you know the, the nuance oftentimes isn't extended to certain neighborhoods as it relates to infrastructure. So you know a, a downtown part of Detroit, a midtown, even a wealthier neighborhood, those infrastructure challenges are not going to be the same as areas where we're seeing, like, um, for example, we do have an active infrastructure pilot project in Hope Village. Uh, that neighborhood at, does have a profound poverty rate, and their infrastructure there is oftentimes unreliable. We've seen that by way of the residents saying, hey, it keeps going out, um, it's really slow, and it's like, okay, uh, at what point do we say, even if looking at the count of people who are not subscribing to the Internet, what is the quality of infrastructure, and quite frankly, would we pay for it? Hmm. And what I'm seeing in certain places, no, I wouldn't pay for that either. So I'd be part of the statistics of on the wrong side of the digital divide just by sheer infrastructure not being competitive and, quite frankly, not worth someone investing into. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about uh, Digital Inclusion Week, uh, what you hope to accomplish uh, during that week and how much it may move us ahead uh, in, in trying to deal with some of these problems. Yeah, so digital inclusion, this is our fourth annual Digital Inclusion Week, so you know, we're excited about that. Uh, a lot of communities are doing their first one or their second one across the country. Hmm. And for us to have four, you know, that shows longevity here. That's really us honoring and recognizing the great work of our partners. I mean, you obviously mentioned Human IT, but we've got a number of other folks um, who've just been involved in varying capacities who's helped us carry this load. Mm -hmm. And so, thankfully, our first day is all on leadership and policy. This is at Wayne State University. Um, and if anyone wants to find out more about Digital Inclusion Week, it's on our website, connect313.org. 
on the top right tab tab actually has Visual Inclusion Week 2022. But that being said, the first day, we're actually going to be talking about contents within the infrastructure bill. And we have the state of Michigan president present, and they'll actually be talking um, a bit more about how they see this funding flowing and what local communities can do, how Detroit can be better positioned to make sure that they're making the strongest case possible to receiving this federal funding that's going to flow from the state. In addition to that, we'll be talking a little bit more about some of our rescue plan investments that we've been able to make, um, as, as well as hearing from some of our partners and like the future planning. The following day on Tuesday, it's really going to be about academic research, uh, some current and some that's gotten us here, because what some people don't see, whenever we make an intervention, for example, again, I'll mention human IT, that was an intervention that was suggested over a decade ago. And that was, there was research proving that. And, you know, some people just see us doing these things. They're not really seeing the longevity. So we want to show folks, like, what we're standing on top of. And then Wednesday, we have a focus on small businesses, making sure that they are aware of digital resources because there are a number of small businesses who are actually on the wrong side of the digital divide themselves. And then Thursday, we are actually going to be doing digital literacy classes, ensuring that residents um, – Lots, lots of seniors, but residents on their own side of the digital divide are aware of digital resources that they can take advantage of. So we'll actually be doing live demos and walking residents through um, modules and tools that they're going to be able to use on their digital journey. And then Friday, we actually have a, a whole day focus on youth. Yeah. And so moving the needle is really going to be shifting the, the discourse and allowing people to ask maybe more tougher questions that are more local and germane to Detroit versus the general questions that usually get asked. Um, you know, without the Detroit context. So we're really happy to be able to have an opportunity to shift folks' discourse as well as just convening uh, partners because it's not like we were able to do that over these last few years anyway. <laughs> right, right. Um, I'm talking with Josh Edmonds. He is the Director of Digital Inclusion for the City of Detroit. We're talking about the digital gap that still exists here in the City of Detroit. Lots of folks who are not connected to the vital uh, digital networks that uh, provide us with so much of the things that we need in our lives uh, at this point. Uh, we're talking about Digital Inclusion Week, uh, which will uh, kind of celebrate and acknowledge uh, the efforts to try to bridge that, gra- that gap here in, in Detroit. I want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, give us a sense of... Uh, how you experience maybe the digital gap here in Detroit. Um, what does your neighborhood look like? What is it? Uh, what is internet access like where you live? Um, what do you think would make that easier or or better? What are the things that we need to be investing in? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019 and you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Josh, I want to make sure we make it clear how people can get involved with uh, Digital Inclusion Week. How can how can the Detroiters participate? Well, uh, aside from the youth day, um, this every event that we have is, is full, free, open to the public. We're not charging for them. We do want people to show up. <laughs> um, and so, uh, again, uh, on our website, connect313.org, uh, folks can actually just kind of peruse and see, you know, what sessions they'd want to attend, what days they would like to be involved. Um, and, you know, we're, we're open. And we would, more, more than anything, just like for people to kind of spread the word, uh, you know, I don't want it to be a thing where 
know, we have all this infrastructure bill money that's on the table and we don't have residential representation there. And so there are strategies behind that, too. Um, We are actively doing a community organizing strategy as well as having and activating our various neighbor technology hubs throughout the city of Detroit. And so we do have things on the back end to, you know, continue to spread the word and supporting residents. But this is really meant to be a culmination of a number of efforts throughout the year and kind of course setting for the year to come. So folks' participation in this is really helpful so that way we can hear directly from them in this fashion versus having to, you know, follow up in perpetuity on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, Internet for all is a great idea, as all citizens should have access, but there are too many on the other side that just don't want to help others or see them do better. Uh, the way they stay in the haves is to ensure there is a group of have-nots. Uh, Josh, I do want to talk about some of the things that have happened in the city um, to accelerate uh, Internet access in some parts. Uh, I used to live downtown, and I loved that I could get rocket fiber. Uh, I mean, the difference uh, in, in that service was just phenomenal. Um, how do we encourage, though, uh, the businesses and the business interests that create things like that in certain parts of town to be more involved in trying to make sure there's just access, even broad, just basic broadband access uh, in other places? Well, this is correlative to the Twitter comment as well in that you know, Rocket Fiber's model was really meant for downtown and midtown. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's great that we had, we had, because they got acquired, but we had (laughs) an an, an alternative for that. Because what you're seeing there is the baseline for choice. And we have not been extended that same luxury or even necessity to neighborhoods. It's not like there's been an internet provider that said, hey, we are for the Detroit neighborhoods, and th- this is why you can see it in our pricing, you can see it in our customer service. Like we haven't had that. And so what the city is doing right now, earlier this year, and we've been doing several community meetings on this front, um, we uh, released what's called an open access uh, model. And open access allows us, the city, to essentially build the infrastructure. We're not going to be an internet provider. We're building the fiber. Mm-hmm. And then we're allowing private businesses to essentially go directly to the consumer on our fiber. No different than there being a dirt road there before. Now we paved that road and said, okay, if UPS, if FedEx, or whomever wants to drive to service this household, we've, we've built the road for that. Right. And so our way of, our, our approach is really one that's going to de-risk that investment that someone would make and saying, we've already made the investment on the fiber. Now private business have at it, own your business within these households, and that should make the cost exponentially cheaper to provide the service now right. to residents. And we right. believe that is the best way to facilitate choice, lower costs, and have a more reliable internet experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Josh Edmonds, Director of Digital Inclusion here in the city of Detroit. It was really great to have you here to talk about this uh, issue on our show. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday when we are going to talk to my friend Dahlia Lithwick about her latest book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.